turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. All I have to do is say this one word, rejection. Everybody starts looking up because every one of us is very familiar with rejection. Rejection is actually one of the deepest hurts a person can experience. How many of you have ever heard this little phrase? Sticks and stones may break what? My bones, but what? Names will never hurt me. Well, I just want you to know that that is not true, and it's now actually been documented. UCLA's been studying rejection and studying brain images of what happens when people experience rejection. In a journal called Science, they actually published the results of their study. They found out that the human brain responds and lights up in the exact same way to rejection as it does to physical suffering. So whether you've experienced some sort of social snub or you've been significantly betrayed, that pain that you feel in your brain is the same kind of pain as if you had been physically assaulted. Now, we say things in our English like, uh, that really hurt me or that broke my heart or that hurt my feelings. Well, guess what? It's true. It indeed has even a physiological effect. And when I say we talk about rejection, think about times that perhaps you've been rejected by friends. Let me give you some rejection that really cuts deep. When parents reject their children or vice versa, when children reject their parents or when you are betrayed and let down and rejected by your spouse. The results, the implications are visceral. And there's a reason why we talk about rejection. Because there are few experiences that strip a person down like being absolutely discarded, turned away, snubbed, and rejected. That is why the rejection of Jesus is a focal point in all four Gospels. The Gospels record all the events surrounding the life of Jesus, what he did, what he said, his miracles, his messages. But one of the things they all bring focus to is that Jesus was totally rejected. And you've got to ask the question, why? Why does God want us to see these details and know so much about the rejection of Jesus? And that is because God wants his people to know how much he loves them and that Jesus would be willing to go to this kind of rejection on their behalf. As we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, it looks and seems as if everything is is coming unraveled. Jesus himself is praying. He's in the garden. Drops of blood are falling and they're mingled with his sweat. He's telling his men that he is going to be abandoned, crucified, that you're going to leave me. And in the garden, he tells them, I want you to stay watch. I want you to pray. And yet three times they just fall asleep. And let me just tell you something. The seed of redemption sprouts from the soil of rejection. And rejection is put on full display beginning in Matthew 26, verse 47. We see the total rejection of Jesus, first of all, by Judas. Look at verse 47. It says, while he was still speaking... Do you remember Jesus is in the garden? 
He's now come for the third time. He had to wake up the guys once more. They could not seem to stay awake and pray, even though Jesus was so vividly upset and disturbed about what was about to take place. Verse 46, he says, get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. This isn't a statement. I'm about ready to flee. Let's get out of here. This is a statement. Let us stand up and let us go and meet them. For this purpose, he has come. And so while he was still speaking, verse 47, notice the word choice that Matthew puts in. Behold. Literally, shock, alert, pay attention to this. Who would have ever saw this coming? Matthew writes, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. This, this was something that no one was expecting as far as the disciples go. Judas. Judas is coming with this. And it's a large crowd. Notice what the text says. There are Roman soldiers. We don't know how many. It was certainly uh, easy to estimate that it literally would be hundreds of armed soldiers and a crowd. You see, they were looking for an opportunity to apprehend Jesus. And Judas provided the, the ultimate place to do it. In a place that would be a little bit away from all the activities away from the Passover. He knew that Jesus would be in the Garden of Gethsemane because that was his pattern. He would go, he'd break away from the crowds, he'd go and pray. And so when Judas left after Jesus said, hey, one of you is going to betray me, Judas knows exactly where to find Jesus. And they show up with swords, clubs. And the reason is because they thought the Jewish leadership thought that it very well was possible that Jesus may lead some sort of revolt, that he might try to fight against them. And, and Jesus was a force to be reckoned with. I mean, think of it. His power, he can heal people. He can raise people from the dead. In fact, it was that very incident of raising Lazarus from the dead that the ultimate led and said, we have got to put an end to this one. And so if you're dealing with a guy who can raise people from the dead, you better be armed and ready. And so they bring a contingent of soldiers. Likely this would have been the, the Praetorian Guard at the Antonio Fortress that Pilate had assigned to guard and make sure that the Jews kept in line and there were no riots. And you have all these others that have these clubs and they are coming to apprehend this Jesus whom they likely build as some sort of messianic revolutionary. You see, they had to trump up some pretty serious charges to get these soldiers to come with them. We're not exactly sure what they told him other than that they made it make, must have made Jesus look like a real seditionist, a true traitor to Rome and a guy about ready to lead a revolt. Certainly, Rome had their eye on Jesus, especially Pilate, because no one makes an entrance into Jerusalem mounted on a donkey, which that's what kings rode. And people are saying, hail, son of David, which is this messianic claim. They were certainly aware of him. All they had to do is say this Jesus Things have gone from bad to worse. He's about ready to lead a revolt. We have got to get him. And so they bring their contingent of soldiers. They show up and they are going to apprehend Jesus. Now look at verse 48. Now he who was betraying him, which is Judas, gave them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Judas says, I'm going to give you the sign of the person to apprehend. This is before the days of TV. Now, what, what's going to take place there is that it's, it's dark. Even though it's full moon, every Passover has a full moon. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
You've got all these olive trees. And so what's going to need to take place is Judas is going to give them a sign. Likely the Roman soldiers didn't know what Jesus looked like. They weren't watching him on the evening news. They didn't have posters. And so Judas says, I have got the sign. I am going to kiss him. Now you might go, that's kind of weird. Whoa, Judas is going to kiss Jesus. But that is, that is the sign of respect that you would give a Jewish rabbi. Or if it's among family members, even men would kiss another man on the cheek as a way of greeting and as showing a sign of esteem. And so that is the sign. Because remember, even some of the disciples were saying, hey, we're willing to even die with you, Jesus. We'll go to prison. We'll die with you. Judas is aware of that. And so that one of them doesn't step in and say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm Jesus. And saying that he is the one they're after. Judas says, I'm going to give you a sign so none of that sort of stuff is going to happen. Because these guys are a little amped up. They're ready to step in. They failed before. They're going to try to show good in front of Jesus. I will go to Jesus himself and I will kiss him. And that will be the sign of the one that you are to apprehend. Now, by the way, when you talk, think about Judas, Judas gets a lot of bad press. Like in the Apocrypha, all the extra biblical writings, when they write about Judas in the, in the future centuries, they make him like totally diabolical, just ultra evil as he's hanging out with Jesus. But guess what? He wasn't like that at all. In fact, if, if one of the guys really had the esteem and respect of all the other disciples, you know what? It was Judas. In fact, he, he was the treasurer. He was in charge of all their money. You see, Judas comes off like a normal, typical disciple, like one of the gang. That's why Matthew is so shocked. He refers to it's Judas, one of the twelve. He's the one that betrays him. And so he says, you know what? I got this sign. I'll kiss him. You seize him. See that? And so here they come. Jesus getting up with his men. He walks to them. They're making their way through that gate. Here they are in this garden of Gethsemane. And all these soldiers, probably hundreds of them and crowds, they got their torches, they got their clubs, they're ready for a fight. Jesus walks and approaches him. Judas is leading the group. The other disciples are like, what? Judas, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? How did, did they arrest you? What are you doing with them? And immediately, verse 49, taking charge of the situation, Judas went to Jesus and said, hail, literally greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Judas never calls Jesus Lord. He does like a lot of society. They'll esteem Jesus as a religious teacher. They'll call him rabbi. That's what the word teacher, rabbi means, teacher. They will not, he will not call him Lord because he is not submitted to him. He's not trusting in him. And so he calls him rabbi, and the text says kissed him. Actually, the Greek text, uh, text actually uh, has the kata phileo. It has the idea of like excessively, like he makes this demonstrative action. He either kisses him repeatedly or he makes this huge show of it. It's, it's a mocking gesture. The Roman soldiers are to pick up. This is the one. But Judas taking this sign of great respect and covenant respect and, and treatment of rabbi was so held in high esteem and Judas makes a mockery of it. Well, he goes and he kisses Jesus and notice what Jesus said. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have come for. And then they came and lay hands on Jesus and seized him. Do you see what Jesus says? Jesus calls him friend. It's not the normal word for friend. It's the word that could be translated comrade, fellow, teammate. 
comrade. Jesus doesn't revile him. Jesus doesn't call him names like traitor, although he certainly could have. You wicked one, wretched one. He calls him friend. I want that to sink in. Did Jesus know that it was Judas, his traitor? Or was this a surprise to Jesus? Did Jesus like, whoa, I never saw this coming. Judas, it's you? No, actually, John 6, 64 says this. Jesus, knowing from the beginning, those who would not believe, and he also knew this, and who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew it from the very beginning who his betrayer was. And yet he loved him tremendously. He invested in him. To give you kind of an equivalent, it's like if you knew that one of your children would actually lead to your death, and you knew it all along, you knew it from the very beginning, and yet you've invested in him and poured into him and loved him, knowing that he was to be the one that would trade you and send you to your death. So it was with Jesus and Judas. Jesus says, friend, friend, do what you have come for. And so they seize him. Now, remember, you've got all these guards here, okay? So far, it's going pretty good. Judas just comes up, kisses Jesus. They seize him. But Peter, he's watching this. He's seeing what happened. There is an event that Matthew doesn't record, but John does. When they ask, Jesus asks, who is it that you are seeking? They say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. In John 18, it records that they actually fell back and fell down because he uttered Yahweh. I am God's name. He says, I am him. And when he said this, they actually fell back. But they picked themselves up. That event alone should have alerted them that this is no mere man. Peter, seeing the situation, seeing them grab Jesus. Well, what do you do? Well, Peter has his little dagger with him. And he, he actually pulls it out and he goes and he's ready to fight. After all, right, he said, I'm willing to die for you. And so Peter's the, kind of the camp of like the ready, fire, aim kind of guy, right? And so he pulls his dagger and this would be a sword, uh, uh, not a sword, but like a dagger. It'd be double bladed. They would carry it in a leather sheath right along their leg here. Fishermen had it. Lots of people had it. It had a lot of uses other than assaulting people. He pulls it out. He goes for the head of the high priest. Ear, uh, high priest. He misses his head, but he gets an ear. Okay? And literally, whoosh, look at this. Verse 52. Verse 51. He says, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached out and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Whoa! So you got one who's, he goes and lances out. He misses his head. He gets an ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. What Jesus is saying, listen, you being the vigilante and taking the law in your own hands, you do that, you take up the sword, you perish by the sword. And he's, Jesus is kind of affirming, listen, you try to kill someone, Justice demands that you die. That's not how my cause will be advanced. This is not the way of my kingdom. Many, many people throughout church history have missed what Jesus said and thought they could advance the cause of Christ and do so through violence. That is not the way of Jesus. 
Dr. Luke, in his account, actually records that this high priest, named Mal- servant named Malchus, Jesus actually restores his ear. And then he says, verse 53, Peter, what are you thinking? Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Don't you know who I am? Twelve legions. A legion had tw- a legion had uh, uh, just a ton of men. You got twelve thousand men, okay, in a legion. He says, "I, I could actually." Excuse me. He had six thousand men, making a total of seventy-two thousand men that I could bring to my disposal instantly. Now, if you're thinking of an angel and you're thinking of like kind of those little precious moments figurines with the little white little wing things on there, you know, and the huge eyes, and you probably you have one in your house, and you're like. Oh, they're so cute and so little sweet, that little angel. Well, you know what? You couldn't be more mistaken. Because angels in the Bible are extremely powerful. You want an example? Uh, for instance, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, there is an Assyrian king called Sennacherib. And he's about ready to tackle Jerusalem and take them on. He's got 185,000 men die in one night because of one angel. We're talking power unheard of. Jesus says, I've got, instantly, I could call 72,000 at my disposal. I could change this situation whenever I want. I choose not to. I am here to do my Father's will. And so he says, don't you think that I could call these 12 legions of angels? But then he says, I want you to see what I'm committed to. Verse 54, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? It has to happen this way, Peter. I am committed to fulfilling all that has been decreed. I have already prayed and said, Lord, if there's any possible way that this cup passed from me, Lord, take it from me. I do not want to have to endure it and break this fellowship with you. But yet not my will, but yours be done. You see that in verse 39? Verse 39? Yet not as I will, but as you will. You see, Peter, I am committed to accomplishing all that God has said. What he's doing is he's beckoning Peter to trust in God's sovereignty instead of taking matters into his own hands. Well, at that time, verse 55, Jesus said to the crowd. So here you've got these masses. We don't know if it's 400, 600, 800. Jesus then addresses the crowds. They've already seized him. They got a hold of him. And now he's going to actually address them. He says, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. What he's saying is like, now this is real interesting. I've been in Jerusalem for a whole week now. I've been teaching in the temple openly. If you've got something against me, why did you not arrest me then? You see, what he's doing is he is showing their deception. And he's also alerting the Roman soldiers that for whatever reason, you got conned in here to come and arrest me and show up with all your getup and all your swords and all your spears. I've been in the temple teaching every single day. If you got a real reason to haul me in, you should have done it in the daylight. But now darkness has fallen and you do the deeds of darkness. That's why you've shown up at this particular time. And then he makes the statement. You see, he said it twice. I'm, this has to take place to fulfill 
the scriptures of the prophets. Like Zechariah 12 and 13, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. It has to go this way. You see, it kind of looks like like Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest. Their plan is actually working exactly the way they'd want it. But in actuality, Jesus is fulfilling the will of the Father. And when we see Judas and the gang, we see total rejection. Here's just a very few words. You may have even missed them. I'd imagine they've been some of the hardest words for Matthew to actually pen in his gospel. But the Spirit of God moved him to write them because it is true. Jesus was not only rejected by Judas. Jesus was rejected by the disciples. Look at this. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Not a lot of words. You don't need to say a whole lot. They simply abandon him. They had made all these grandiose statements about, oh, no, 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 we're not going to betray you. We're going to stand with you. No one's going to mess with you. We're willing to die with you. Peter was the spokesman. They're all saying the same thing. But in reality, when they should have been praying for strength and saying, God, help us, they were sleeping. And the truth of the matter is, just like Jesus said, the shepherd is going to be struck and the sheep are going to scatter. And so they did. They fled. They left him and rejected him. Think about it. He chose them. They lived with him for three years. He poured into them. He loved them. He gave them everything. In this moment, they see what's happening. It's like everything's coming unraveled. And it's just like a visceral response. They just hightail it out of there. They think, we're next. There's somebody else else that actually rejects Jesus. In fact, not only is it this particular individual, but it's the whole group of them. This should have never happened. But Caiaphas and all of Israel's leadership, they completely reject Jesus. If anybody should have known who the Messiah is and that Jesus was fulfilling one prophecy after another and showing time and time again that he is, it's these guys. And so they're going to haul him off. The disciples flee, verse 57. Then those who seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Now, if we put together the gospel accounts, there are six trials for Jesus. There are three Jewish trials and there are three Gentile trials. Matthew doesn't record the first one, but John does. And the situation is this. When they they take Jesus away... Caiaphas is getting ready for the big trial. He is actually gathering the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body of Israel. Mind you, this is between midnight and 3 a.m. Because remember, Jesus said that the rooster is going to crow. Before the rooster crows, you, Peter, will deny me three times. That hasn't happened. So we're talking in the middle of the night between 12 and 3. What's happening is Caiaphas is gathering the Sanhedrin. They have actually been plotting. It's not like he had to get him out of bed or anything like that. This was the night. But the first person they take Jesus to is perhaps one of the most powerful men of all Jerusalem. And that is a guy by the name of Annas. Annas was the high priest from AD 7 to 14. Now, remember, you were supposed to be the high priest for life. However, the Romans said, you know, we don't like that. That's too much power. So you know what? Anytime we don't like the high priest, we're going to just change him out. And they did it with pretty good frequency. Annas had it for five years. But then something happened, and so Annas' sons, in fact, he had five sons, they became the successive high priests. And as soon as they did something that kind of messed with the Romans, and they didn't like something, that kind of made them mad, 
gone. Next. I got another boy. All right. Okay, we'll try him out for a while. And so he went through five of those. Then after he didn't have any more sons, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, became the next high priest. And he was obviously very successful at keeping the Romans happy because he managed to stay the high priest for 18 years. But make no mistake, he was merely a puppet in Annas' hands. In fact, even the New Testament refers to the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. It was never, there was only one priest, but like in Luke chapter 3, I think it's like in verse 2, they talk about the high priest of both of these guys because Caiaphas was just merely a puppet in Annas' hands. And so they first bring Jesus to Annas because after all, he's the one who has really instigated this. The hatred that Annas has for Jesus is deeply personal. You see, Annas controls not only the high priesthood, but he controls the temple. You see, they had already turned the temple into a business. There's just something about religious people. They've got to turn things into a business and make money at it. And Annas was extremely good. They had a system where you had to buy their sacrifice, their goats and their sheep for sacrifices. They had their, the Roman money wasn't good because it was defiled. It was from Gentile. You had to use temple money that they made. And so they had brokers and they charged these exorbitant fees. It was a huge racket. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus goes to the temple. He flips all the tables over and says, this is not what my father intended. And just a few days prior to this, Jesus, when he makes his way into the temple, guess what he does? He flips all their tables and says, you have missed it. You have taken my father's house and you've made it a den of robbers. This is to be a home and a house of prayer. And you've missed it. And when he flipped all those tables and sent everybody running and he scourged some folks. Let me tell you who took it deeply personal. Annas. You see, Jesus was messing with his God, his little G.O.D., is money. You know, whatever your God is, someone starts toying with that, affecting it, you start affecting them, right? And so that's exactly what's taking place here. He goes, first of all, to Annas. Annas, he has to just come up with some sort of specific charge against Jesus. Friends, this has got to be good. You can't afford to mess this up, and they know it. You've already involved all these Roman soldiers. Word's going to get back to Pilate if it hasn't already done so, that they are, they've already got this contingent of soldiers. They've arrested Jesus. And so they've got to come up with a charge. You can't come up with something simple like blasphemy, because you know what? The Romans could care less if the Jews you know, were saying that this person's God or Messiah. They're not going to kill anybody for something like that. However, if you, if you did something like insurrection, sedition, a revolution, well, we've got crosses for people like that. So Annas has got to figure out how to get Jesus killed. That's going to be pretty hard because he's been perfect so far. So they first meet with Annas, and then they go to Caiaphas. It's very possible that they live in Upper Jerusalem, uh, where their houses actually shared a courtyard, and there are homes that they've actually excavated. Beautiful, upper-class homes have patios that multiple homes would share. It's very possible that that's what takes place. And so they seize Jesus, verse 57. Matthew records when they actually take it to the quote-unquote high priest of the time, Caiaphas. Caiaphas, every time he gets pressed in Scripture, he always hates Jesus and wants to see him dead. This is his moment. He's got the scribes and the elders. They've gathered together. And look at this, verse 58. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. John actually records that John actually knew the high priest. And he was able to get Peter and himself in 
to watch these proceedings and watch this all unravel as they're hiding in the background. They're watching Jesus front and center. Now, everything these guys do is illegal at this point. Okay, and just watch and I'll point out a few of these things. But look at verse 59. Now, the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death. So they gathered together. They got the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. These are the ones that made judgments. They were the judges. They called it right or wrong. Living, die. They were the ones that made those decisions. They've gathered in the middle of the night and they're trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. Think about it. These judges are actually acting like prosecutors. That's not how it works. They were supposed to rule against the evidence that was put before them. And verse 60, and they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward, and they just couldn't find someone. They couldn't even get the guys they were paying off to make sense and to reconcile. You could see the frustrations. I mean, they don't have a lot of time. They got Jesus in their possession. It's starting. Passover is going to happen for them in just a matter of hours when the sun rises. Let me just point out some of the things that are illegal. First of all, uh, criminal trials could not be held at night, according to Jewish law. Second of all, trials in, in the event of capital cases could only be held in the temple, okay? And they actually had a particular place called the Chamber of the Hewn Stone. This is where the Sanhedrin, the 71 members of the Sanhedrin met, and they actually made all of their rulings. And this is where they'd hold their court cases. You couldn't just have it in the middle of the night. You certainly couldn't have it at the high priest's house. That's not how justice was meant to be handled. If you had a criminal case, it was a capital case, it had to be done during the day, not at night. And finally, let me give you something else that they're not doing. In the, according to rabbinic law, that you had to, if it was a capital case, you, these Sanhedrin guys had to fast a 24-hour period after they made their decision. It was one of the ways you kept uh, having cases like this handled on feasts like Passover. Because no one wants to be fasting when you're supposed to be celebrating Passover. So they just hold that prisoner until they could have time or they could fast. And at the end of the fast, if they had ruled that this guy's guilty and he's guilty of, and worthy of death, after 24 hours, they'd pull them again. Do you still feel that way? If there was a change after fasting and they said, no, I'm not so sure, the guy'd be released. But of course, if you had said he was not guilty, uh, you couldn't then go around and change your opinion, think he was. Well, all these rules are being broken. Everything about jurisprudence that was practiced by Israel, and they were good at it, is being completely abandoned. They're trying to find a false witness. And do you see that? that this is real important, verse 60. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they, they couldn't find anybody to reconcile. Here's something, here's something you need to know. If you were a false witness on a capital case, guess what? If you found that you committed perjury, you die. This is not something to be trifled with, like, well, okay, you want me to just make up some story that Jesus did this? Okay, I'll do it. No, according to Jewish law, you die if you perjure yourself, if you lie under oath. But finally, look at this. They've got it. But later on, two came forward. They've heard, it's all coming together. Verse 61, and they said, uh, This man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three Days. Did Jesus say that? How many of you think Jesus said that? How many of you think he didn't? And how many of you are like, I really like to find out without raising my hand right now. <laughs> Let me tell you, he didn't say that. 
He said something similar to that. In fact, it happened at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2, verse 19. He actually used the second person plural. He said, you, it says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He said, destroy the temple. And he's speaking about the temple of his body. And he says, you destroy this temple. I'll raise it up in three days. But they got these false witnesses and they said, well, let's twist it. And let's just say that he said, I'm going to destroy the temple. And in three days, I'm, I'm going to be the one that's going to raise it up. And so that's what they said. And this is a really good charge. Do you know why? Because it was a capital offense, meaning you die if you destroyed a temple in Rome. <laughs> you got to just see the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas' face. And it's like, yes, we have got it. And here you got witnesses, you got two of them. They said that he's, he said these things. And so he's ready to proclaim judgment. Verse 62, it happens. The high priest stood up. And so when they would, the high priest would declare his judgment, that's what he'd do. He stood up. And so he stands up and he said to him, speaking to Jesus, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Did you say this thing? Because if you did, you're dead. We're just going to hand you over to the Romans. You are a revolutionary. You made a threat against Rome. You said you're going to tear down their temple. And so what Caiaphas tried to make up in intimidation, what he's lacking in evidence, he makes this great scene. But look at this, verse 63. Jesus kept silent. Remember in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant? Like a lamb who is led to slaughter and like a sheep before his shears, so he did not Open his mouth. He was stoically silent, for he knew they were lying. And so Caiaphas, furiated, Jesus won't respond. Finally, he says, he makes him a test under oath. Verse 63, Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, you can see him standing. You can see him just yelling at his face, pointing his finger Jesus, his eyes looking into the eyes of of Caiaphas as he's making this call. And then he says, I adjure you. I put you under oath by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Are you the Messiah? Because that is the issue. Are you him? And Jesus then chooses to open his mouth and answer. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus uses two highly messianic prophecies. One from Psalm 110, verse 1. Remember where the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And in the other one from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the Son of God has full authority and he's coming in the clouds. And Jesus says, those speak of me. You think you're my judge. Let me assure you, hereafter, you're going to see that I actually am the judge. He takes the most highest view of deity possible and he, does, and he, has, he basically ascribes it to himself. There was no mystery to the high priest or anyone gathered what Jesus meant. Because look at verse 65. The high priest tore his robes and said, he is blasphemed. He has actually taken on the name of God himself. He thinks he's God. He thinks he's the Messiah. What further need do we have of witnesses that we've been paying off these false witnesses? We don't need them anymore. 
because Jesus is blasphemed because he says he's the Messiah, that he's God. And he says, behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? It's very interesting. John the Baptist had declared, this is the one. All the miracles, all the things that Jesus did, even hearing, healing Malchus's ear, remember that? All of that is discounted. In fact, the very reason that they're going after him is because when he raised Lazarus, they said, you know what? We have got to do something with this man because if we don't, everyone will believe in him. And furthermore, Rome was going to take our place from us and our nation. We can't have it. We like our place. We like our power. We have got to do something with this Jesus. All of those things, the raising of Lazarus, the miracles, they're all discounted. The fulfillment of all the prophecies. They'll have nothing to do with it. And so the question is asked, what do you think? You see, they've got two choices. They either realize this indeed is the Messiah and they fall down and they worship him and repent. Or you've got to kill him. Those are the only two choices. You reject him and say, I don't think you'll be my king. And you see that he's killed. And so they fall in line. They dutifully answer and look what they say. They answered, verse 66, he deserves death. From the standpoint of the law, they think that Jesus deserves less death from the Jewish law because he has said that he's the Messiah, that he's God the Son. But from Roman law, they got to do better than that. They have to come and get him to come across as some sort of messiah pretender trying to start a revolution, sedition. And so they're going to have to twist this because if they're going to have Rome kill him, because Rome will not allow the Jews to execute capital punishment, they've got to have charges a little bit better than blasphemy. They've got to get Jesus to come across as an insurrectionist. And so, verse 67, then they spat on his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? And here's something that's very interesting. In Isaiah, when they talk about the suffering servant in chapter 11, verses 2 through 4, it is said of this Messiah that he is going to able to actually uh, be able to make judgment without seeing. Literally, it says in verse 3 in chapter 11, and he will not judge by what his eyes see. Mark records that they actually blindfold Jesus. And what's happening there is that they are saying, you think you're the Messiah? Well, then tell us, who's the last one who hit you? What was his name? Who's the guy that just hit you from behind? And they blindfold him. It's all a mockery. You see, Messiah can pass judgment without seeing. And so you think you're a Messiah? Well, we'll find out. And so they literally abuse Jesus. All, of course, is completely illegal. And yet Jesus bears this with a quiet majesty. It's like Peter wrote, because Peter watched this. He said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, And while being reviled, he did not revile. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So let me just ask you, what do you think? Who is this Jesus? You see, in the midst of this total rejection, Jesus reveals his true identity. His true identity is that he's the eternal son of God. He is judge, he's savior, he's Lord. Jesus also reveals his total commitment to do the will of the Father. Remember, not my will, but your will be done. I am here to fulfill the will, your will, to redeem a lost humanity, to willingly pay for their sins. 
I will die in their place. And let me tell you something else that Jesus reveals in the midst of this total rejection. His tremendous love for his people. Why did Jesus endure all this? Do you know why? For you. For you. For you. He endured this total rejection for you so that you will know the greatness of his love. See, God intends that we think about this regularly. We're far more familiar with sports and what's going on on TV, but God wants our mind filled with the life and the events of Jesus. That these gospel accounts, his rejection, his death, his life, his resurrection, they're continually before us. They remind us how much he loves us. And so when you face temptation, think of Jesus. When you're discouraged, go to him. When you're facing something you're fearful or if you're rejected, think of Jesus who's gone before you. Let me tell you, friends, the Christian life is fixing our eyes on Jesus. For the seed of redemption sprouts from the soil of rejection. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing passage. You want us to see how much the Son has endured on our behalf so that we'll love you forever with great joy. Obedience is a not really the issue because we love you. We're compelled. Worship is not something we have to conjure up. It's an expression of a heart that's overwhelmed by the goodness of Jesus. And so, Father, if there's someone here who's never placed their faith in Christ, but they finally see who he is, Lord, would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I finally see who Jesus is. I, I turn from my sin, and I trust him who has willingly suffered on my behalf and paid the penalty for my sin, rose again that I might have eternal life. And Lord, for all of us, transform us through your word according to the power of your spirit. May we live differently. May we live in love. We ask this in Jesus' name.